Welcome to WCSU 411, a podcast about interesting people and achievements at Western Connecticut State University. I'm here in Whitehall with Dr. Christopher Cook, a political science professor who has written a recently published book about compassion. This is a fun interview for me because I've known Chris for a long time, ever since I started working here at the university, and we uh, have a good time. He's one of the people who are passionate here at the university. He is energetic. He loves uh, teaching. He loves being a professor. He appreciates what uh, the life of a professor is. And a big part of that is how you uh, can affect students' lives and uh, make the world a better place uh, that way. So I think a lot of that will come out in this uh, interview. Um, I'll just uh, give you a little background first. Chris is a Brookfield native. He's married to a Brookfield native named Ellie. They have three sons. Chris earned his bachelor's in political science from Boston University, and he likes me to mention that he graduated Phi Beta Kappa. (laughs) He also earned his master's in American and international politics and his PhD in political science from Boston College. He also likes to talk about how he's a graduate of the U.S. Army Military Intelligence School's Counterintelligent Agent Program. Uh, He's been recognized with the university's Teaching Excellence Award. He's a director of the Kathwari Honors Program here on campus and the Center for Compassion, Creativity, and Innovation. And now he's written this book called The Compassionate Achiever, How Helping Others Fuels Success. So, Chris, my first question is, what in your life led you to think that you could tell the rest of us how to be compassionate? (laughs) Um, I am not. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, I wrote the book because so many people told me that in order to succeed, I had to be more ruthless. And everything that I went through from playing high school football to boot camp to working on Wall Street actually all showed me the opposite. It showed me that people who attain success at a very high level, and this is the key, sustain that success, were actually the compassionate ones, mm. right? And you hear that saying, at least I did, you know, growing up by you know, some older people and some bosses that you're too nice, that people are gonna walk all over you, people are gonna take advantage of you, and you know, the, the nice guys finish last type of speech. Not not necessarily go get them Gipper speech, right? It's the, you know, be more ruthless. And I, I just, I think that's absolutely insanely wrong. And it's insanely wrong when you just look at the world around you. And it could be from economics to politics to learning. It, it's, it's all the same. The compassionate uh, environment actually breeds success and a sustained success. And I'm not saying that work jerks are going to win some battles. They inevitably will but they will flame out because as they fall, because we all fall, we all trip up. There's always some mistake somewhere along the line. And when you fall, if you're a work jerk, you cut all the ropes, you cut all the bridges, you cut all the ties. Who's going to help you up? But if you helped others up when they needed help and you're not asking for it, but when you fall, it's amazing. And it, how many people notice that you're falling and they come and they help and it gets you back on the road and I don't I I think we discount that and it's not that we're going to be saints by you know reading this book and you're 
I think it'll help create a better workplace, um, a, a better world if we are all more compassionate. But it's the simple things we do, and it's Dr. Wu in uh, uh, Camus' *The Plague*, where he talks about to fight a pestilence. Basic civility is the key. And basically, that's what this book is getting down to, and how to do it on an everyday level. It's kind of, you know, I'm, I'm a runner, and I always find time to run. You can always find that time for the compassion and build that compassion muscle as well. So I didn't write the book so, uh, to tell the rest of the world, oh, you can be more compassionate. I, I wrote the book to show myself and everyone that the compassionate people are the successful people. And it's never lonely at the top when you're compassionate. So you've been thinking about it a while, obviously. Was there something here that kind of triggered this um, uh, move that eventually led to a book? Without a doubt. It was coming here to WestCon. I call WestCon BestCon. And and it's for a reason. The students here are absolutely hungry. And I didn't find that at the other schools that I was at. And I don't know why that's the case I'm just riding it like a sur- like a surfer riding a wave um, and the students I bring up the students because we had a guest speaker here uh, come the Dalai Lama his holiness the Dalai Lama and that was the spark and to see our students our students work behind the scenes with you all on the administration side to make that happen and to see how that transformed this campus and it wasn't just for one day he was here for two days and one of the reasons we started the Center for Compassion and Paul you were right there uh, with us uh, making that happen the center happen we didn't want His Holiness's event right to be one and done we wanted to have an everlasting impact and how cool is it to have compassion as the uh, everlasting impact of a speaker coming to campus so if there was a big one, big spark. I would point to that to that uh, visit by His Holiness the Dalai Lama, and it did spark a lot of. After the center was formed or uh, founded, uh, we're now a University of Compassion, and Danbury is a City of Compassion, isn't that right? Correct. We were the second University of Compassion in the world, and we didn't follow the first university's path because it came from the president. It was Spalding University in Kentucky, so it came from top down. And our University of Compassion, the way we formed it, was literally two students, me, and then everyone else. And I mentioned it to you. You were like, yeah, that sounds great. I mentioned it to so many people, and they were like, yeah. And by the time we knew it, you know, we, we didn't have an official place to meet when we first started. I don't know if you remember. We were meeting in my living room. And we had like 30 people, you know, representing, um, you know, secretarial staff, representing, you know, students, representing administration. It was so cool to see all the different partners in the university come together on a project and help create the center and then the conferences that came out of it. And it, that's, that's the beauty about doing projects like that. So many people from so many different backgrounds and so many different talents and strengths. Because we all have our weaknesses, we all have our strengths. And, and to be a part of that whole environment to build this center for compassion, creativity, and innovation, to me, I felt very lucky to be at a place at a university that valued that. And so we started literally from the ground up where other universities top down. And I think ours will stick because it came from the ground up. And that, that's, that's the amazing part. And then the city of compassion, um, I have this idea about life that we should weave everything that we do 
So whatever we're doing personally, professionally, we weave them together. And as you're moving through things, right, sometimes things get weak, projects that you're on get weak. Well, maybe there's another project somewhere else that you're doing that can help strengthen that. And that's exactly what happened with this, uh, the University of Compassion and the City of Compassion. The City of Compassion and University of Compassion, I started at the same time. And I was trying to learn as I went and helped. What we did on one side of the city or the university helped the other side, you know, move it forward. And that, that was just a blast to do. Uh, city of Danbury became the first city in the East Coast to become a city of compassion. Now you have Atlanta, New York, a lot of those smaller cities, <laughs> right, became uh, cities of compassion. So and now we have towns of compassion, you know, forming. We have Milford in the state of Connecticut. New Britain is a city of compassion. Uh, Central Connecticut State University became another university of compassion. I'm, I'm helping Quinnipiac, uh, University of Southern Maine, you know, all over the place. Uh, Stanford, University of Hawaii. So it, it's really just just spawning and now there's over 400 right and we were the second one and it that that's just really cool the, the networks that are being built up to help spread compassion to help each other out is, is simply amazing and it was lacking mm-hmm. it seems like people are getting it now i remember at the beginning it was you know it's great having the dalai lama here and when the dalai lama talks about compassion everybody sits there and nods and takes it in and is thrilled and uh, then when he leaves, it's a little harder to keep the conversation going, right? And people say, not un- illegitimately, but they say, well, uh, what really does it mean to um, be yes. compassionate? What does it mean in our lives other than a dictionary definition? So you spend a lot of time talking about that. Yes, right. And, and you get the sense that people misunderstood what compassion was. And, you know, it's really just listening to other people's perspectives or listening to what they thought was important and then kind of showing them that compassion is a part of whatever that is. It could be economics, right? That a city might be just focused on economic revitalization and who can blame them, right? Yes, you're right, but compassion helps there too, right? And we had stats. I use Financial Times, right? The Financial Times had some great articles on the role of compassion in communities and what that did to real estate values. What do you think happened to real estate values in cities and towns that became compassionate cities and towns? Did the real estate value go up or down? It, there's one answer. It went up. School districts went up when they became schools of compassion because of the reputation that then uh, proceeded. And then what happens when schools go up in reputation? I wonder what happens to real estate values. They go up. So this is not rocket science. It may actually include a little brain science because compassion activates a peptide hormone called oxytocin. And oxytocin then activates uh, neurotransmitters like dopamine and serotonin. So there's a little brain science going in there. But those neurotransmitters like dopamine help you with your memory. The more dopamine you release, the better you remember things. And the better you remember things, the better chance off of learning those things and having those things stick. So compassion has these multifaceted and multiple benefits, these byproducts that people don't or didn't think about. And now the science is out there. And that's another reason I wrote the book. The science has caught up to what the Dalai Lama has said ever since he was reincarnated, right? (laughs) (laughs) And that compassion is key. And now the science is showing it. And it's it's a beautiful thing to see how, you know, um, and, and people have a hard time thinking that you can't be both spiritual and scientific. And I think the Dalai Lama is showing, yeah, you can. You can be both. 
Mm-hmm. He did talk about that. And one of my questions was, how do you keep this going? I mean, I think it's pretty easy to say, okay, this weekend I'm going to be compassionate and feel good <laughs> about it and you know, get through the uh, holiday or whatever it is without screaming at your family. <laughs> But that isn't really what you're talking about, right? And so, how, but and you're talking about how to keep it going and keep yeah. doing it. And yeah. one way is it helps you feel better, right? It it certainly does. It it, it has a ton of health benefits that you know, science has actually shown. But it's like anything else, you know. If you pick up running, right? It the running you get by the for me it's the third week. You get by the third week. It's, I have to do it now, mm-hmm. right? There, there's no ifs, ands, or buts. It's something I have to do. Same thing with compassion. It's compassion, you can work on it. And in the book, I have basically four steps. Those four steps are broken down into three chapters to give people exercises, something you can do on every day. For example, I, I think the very first thing you need to develop, we all do, certainly I did, uh, was to listen, to listen to learn, listen to understand. But we live in a culture, we live in a society that simply listens to reply. And we don't try to understand others' perspectives. And compassion, you know, it has two segments to it. I define compassion as a 360-degree holistic understanding of a problem or suffering of another. So that's the first segment. And then you have a commitment to act to address that problem or suffering of another. So it's two things. It's that understanding and that acting and that part of that understanding how do you understand someone if you don't listen to them mm-hmm. y- you can't right because if you put your perceptions on then you're not learning anything new either and if you think you have all the answers i don't think you're learning and i think you constantly learn by asking better questions right and we've forgotten that and even our school systems they fill in little black bubbles they don't ask them to f- make better questions, right? Or to think about things in a different way. It's what did you learn and then regurgitate back. To me, that, that's not learning. That's simply memorizing. And that can lead to dogma and people just believing whatever they, they read in books or, or listen on podcasts <laughs> to us. Mm-hmm. So for me, when I do talks, it's the questions that are the, uh, the most fun to me because people think they also know Darwin. I use Darwin to support my um, argument about compassion. And Darwin talks about it in, in The Descent of Man, clearly, but in other works as well. And that's the thing. We think we know how the world operates. And my bosses, my coaches thought they knew that you know, it's being ruthless, it's being taken down. And you know, even though I was a small part of the intelligence establishment during the Cold War as a counterintelligence agent, I was a simple field agent. You know, I was out in the field. But I had a chance to sit down and interview what we call we called him C. He was the chief of MI6. Everyone knows him as M in James Bond movies, but we called him C. And I asked him, I said, you know, he stopped me and we were at a conference together and he goes, hey, you're that professor writing the book about compassion. I said, yes, sir. And he goes, I heard you want to interview me. I said, yes, sir. And he goes, how about now? And we had lunch together. And I said to him, you know, from my perspective and I was on the low end is that the best agents I had that I worked with were the most compassionate not the most ruthless and he said unequivocally yes and he, and he talked about the IRA and he talked about even torture and waterboarding and he said that the agents who went off like you know that 
TV show 24, where everything's exploding, those guys lost their badge and weapons because they would get us killed. You go that way, you go to John Wayne, blow him up, talk later out, you actually create more problems. And that's what he said. He said the best agent cultivate, the best agents cultivate resources. And when you torture, when you go that ruthless route, you get the information you want, not the information you need. And that's a big difference. So even in counterintelligence, even in military, compassion plays a key role. But we discount it because we think we know the answer. But we haven't looked at the science. We didn't ask the people in the field. We didn't talk to the people who are actually putting the whole strategy together. Right? And, and that's, that's what bothers me. I think you know, we haven't asked the right questions. And what did Darwin say about it? So Darwin, especially in chapters, well, let's just go back to the origins of species, because that's what I was taught in fifth grade mm-hmm. and <laughs> sixth grade, right? And we were taught Darwin's hypotheses, right? By the way, Darwin never said, he did not coin the term survival of the fittest. It was a guy named Spencer, Herbert Spencer, who coined that term. Darwin, and on the origin of species, simply hypothesized there, there might be something like that. But... He's like, let me find out. And so the rest of his, he did his research. Well, go down a few years later after all his research to the descent of man. And the descent of man is just mind-blowingly cool. Especially chapters 2, 4, and 5. Chapters 2, 4, and 5, he says this. This is Charles Darwin. Is this the Darwin? So this is after his research. I was not taught this. But this is what he found. He said that the species that will move up the evolutionary ladder most efficiently and effectively is the species who has the highest number of its members that are, and this is Charles Darwin, sympathetic. Is that the Darwin that you were taught? Because, <laughs> Paul, it was not the Darwin I was taught. And I, I had to reread, and I carry with it with me on my iPad, because some people just don't believe it. <laughs> and so I, you just go read Darwin. And in sympathy, he means three things in three different parts of different works. It means empathy, altruism, and compassion. Hmm. That's Charles Darwin, right? The ruthless ones actually get more people killed. The evolutionary, the species dies off, Mm -hmm. right? It's, and this is, when you step back, you're like, yeah, that makes sense. They're not allowed to breed. I mean, what the, so I think if we step back and we take a look at the classic works, if we take a look at the modern science, they all say one thing. That compassion is a key to success. But because we think in this society compassion is soft, maybe we even think compassion is weak, we miss an opportunity to strengthen, I would argue, the greatest country in the world, the United States of America. We're losing an opportunity by not even acknowledging that. Right? And I was overseas teaching to 119 European students from all across Europe, and I was explaining this international relations theory called realism where basically you put other countries down so you can stay on top and i was using like i do here in the united states of the example of all right when you're out in the playground you play king of the hill and in the united states everybody knew what i was talking about there i got blank stares from all 119 and this one young polish scholar i'll never forget her she raised her hand she goes dr cook what's king of the hill so I had to explain that on American playgrounds, we allow and teach our kids to play a game where you, to get on top, you push others down. And then I explained we also have a game called Kill the Carrier, 
<laughs> where you throw a ball and then a bunch of the other kids go and pound the heck out of the person running for their life. And she raised her hand afterwards. And she goes, thank you, Dr. Cook. That explains so much about the United States. Because they don't play that there. And, and that's the thing, right? We don't even know what we're doing. Let's not even get into video games, right? And you know, Grand Theft Auto, whatever games that you, you want to talk about. But we teach certain things and we allow those things to go without correcting them. And so we wonder why you know, our society goes in a certain way. I think if we just actually open up the books, look at the science, it's very clear. Mm-hmm. A lot of that is baked into what we think of ourselves as Americans and uh, what we think about America, right? Manifest destiny. And um, Theodore Roosevelt said, walk softly and carry a big stick. So he had the walk softly part, but he was still <laughs> invading the Philippines and Cuba. And uh, it uh, is part of what we hear about in our history, right? Yeah, and, and that's the thing. It's, it's what we think helps get us ahead, right? And, it's, and when you look at, and we haven't even touched economics, right? And when you talk about businesses, Right? And some people say, we don't need compassion in, in business. And we've had a conference here on that. It showed that quite the opposite, especially local um, businesses here. But Enron, Enron mm-hmm. was very self-centered. Right? It drove electricity into the ground to increase its own profits. Where is it now? It's destroyed. It's There's gone. Nothing, yeah. Exactly. But you have companies like Patagonia, who've been around for decades, right? who give back to the community nonstop. And they're still su- successful. Mm-hmm. That's what I mean about not just high success, but sustained success. And if you're in it to be a flash in the pan, then yeah, you probably can be a work jerk and work your way up, and, 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 but you're going to flame out. And I, I think if you're interested in, in making a long-term success, and I would also, and also making a difference, if that makes a difference to you, right? If, if that's something that's important to you, uh, I don't think, how, I don't know how you can, exclude compassion from your equation of success. So the book is, as you describe it, is a toolbox, right? People can read it and uh, use the tools that you give them to learn how to become compassionate. Yeah, it's just, it's one toolbox, right? I have a father-in-law who's a race car mechanic, and he has all different types of tools to accomplish different things. And I give basic set of tools that either I've worked with or that I give examples of how people achieved it and how they worked with uh, those tools. But yeah, it's also an everyday set of toolbox. So you can get up and you don't have to, you know, go save the world, hmm. right? You can make the difference and that ripple. And I truly believe this, that, that your kindness, your compassion, your civility, when you act on that, it acts as a, a stone or a pebble in the pond of life. And that ripple carries through and you know we get to work in a relatively small university so we get to see those ripples i think a little bit more often than than other people do at 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 larger places and it's one of the reasons i love being here because you get that every once in a while and you have students who come back after two or three years and something you did that you just basically common compassion but they it changed the way they were going that week or something in their life. And I just met another young scholar two years ago that happened. And I was just walking back from lunch and, you know, to get that type of greeting, 
it feels like I know Paul, you know, um, you know, cheers, <laughs> you know, when you walked into that, that cheers bar, um, everyone, you know, knew your name as, as the song goes. And, and here you feel like family and you can build that camaraderie and, 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 and people helping other people. And when that happens, it, it becomes unstoppable because it's not just one person doing it. It's many people doing it. And that, that's just a beautiful thing when people are helping other people. I don't know how you can be against that. Uh, but, but, you know, I know some people just think that they can, you know, separate it and, and be independent of what's ever going around them. I, I think science also shows you that's not the case, right? Uh, astrophysicists have shown we're mostly, we're mostly made of stardust. We are born interconnected. And I think that that's an advantage to our species, of that interconnection, we would have been eaten by much stronger predators out there if we didn't team up and cooperate mm-hmm. together. And Darwin shows that, evolutionary science shows that, but we've forgotten that. And you know, and I think now more than ever in an age when people are talking about using tactical nuclear weapons again, I thought that was behind us. I think that's more important now than ever before is the type of discussions of how cooperating together helped our species not only survive, but thrive. So I agree with you. The ripples are great and working with people is great and uh, uh, you can really accomplish a lot, but you still get slapped down sometimes, right? (laughs) Heck yeah. (laughs) And uh, so does your uh, toolbox help the uh, person, person striving to be compassionate uh, figure out how to get back up again and continue along that line instead of just giving up and saying oh, I was compassionate for a while yes it has ideas about resiliency hmm. and and bouncing back up and bouncing back in a different way in a much stronger way uh, not necessarily back and one of my good friends taught me that lesson she lost her her uh, son in the Sandy Hook mm-hmm. shooting and we've had some really powerful discussions about resiliency that and I've learned so much from her Scarlett Lewis that uh, on re, on the topic of resiliency that you know and, and she's in the book on that section because I think so many of us can learn from her and others who've gone through such traumatic experiences and and have come out in a way not the same and she'll say that but in, in a different way stronger and yes we we talk about that we also talk about how when you come up against someone who completely disagrees with you on the opposite side, but I, um, and they don't want any new knowledge, right? They think they have it. I call them knoxers, mm. knowledge boxers, <laughs> right? They're fighting off any new knowledge. But there's a way to talk to them that also gets them to listen to you as you listen to them. Because if you don't listen to them, they're not going to listen to you. So you, I listen to see what we have in common. And there's always something. And I try to use that as a bridge to, to talk about th- those things. And so there are, are ways of doing that. Um, and, but just like in real life, context changes things. And, and sometimes, you know, you are going to lose some of the battles. Sometimes you will. And it is about then taking that resiliency charge. And so you could listen. You could use some of their ideas to help bridge the gap. But still, you might you might lose the battle. And so, yeah, you got to pick yourself up and keep chugging along and finding another way to make it happen. And, but to be honest with you, it's kind of like whitewater rafting. When your raft gets turned over, 
I don't know about you, but I get excited. It's like, okay, maybe I missed something here, right? And so let me get back up on there and, 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 and go at it again, right? That, that's fun to me. And because that means I need to learn something new. I missed something. Mm-hmm. I, didn't, I didn't quite understand everything around me. And I, I see that as a, a cool challenge, as an opportunity to learn. It helps you be less scared about uh, the challenges that are out there, right? Yeah, yeah, I think so. And, and I think it's just, it's just a way you know, to, to think about life. And we all have different ways of, of doing that. And, and that's why I bring in a lot of examples from other people. Because I have one way that I experience, but then I provide a different way that someone else you know, accomplish the same goal, but differently than I did. And I think if we, you know, had a toolbox where we can go like that uh, and, and just go to the page numbers, I hired a professional indexer <laughs> so that they could actually, you know, nail the index that, that people they could use it as a toolbox um, to, to move forward on whatever they're doing in a compassionate way. I'm intrigued with the idea of uh, becoming a better listener. So um, one of, I assume, one of the tools that you advocate is uh, finding uh, area of agreement and building on that what are some of the other things that you do to teach yourself or other people can teach themselves to be a, a better listener so one practical way is to listen to radio shows or podcasts of radio personalities you vehemently disagree with mm. and listen to the whole thing that's hard to do yeah a lot of people find that hard to do but You'll be surprised there'll be something in there and look for something that you agree with, but you got to listen to it all the way through and practice that, practicing listening. Practice not saying anything when someone else is talking. You know, go to coffee with somebody, ask them a question, and don't interrupt them. Don't jump in. Don't say something. Simply listen for the sake of listening. And my wife was my biggest teacher of that, Paul, because when we got married young, um, and we've been married, it's going to be 29 years pretty soon. And we, um, I took the approach where if there was a problem she came to me with, we talked about it over dinner, I felt like I had to try to solve it. But all she wanted me to do was listen. Mm-hmm. I didn't get that at first. And I had to learn that, that, you know, she didn't want me to solve her problems. She wanted me to just let her vent. And I, I, I wasn't used to that. I thought, you know, my job was, as her husband, was to help her in any way. And one way to help her was to listen. And I, I didn't understand it. So, you know, I think we have teachers all the way around us. My boys now, my 9, 11, and 13-year-old boys teach me that. Because right? they, they echo back the things I do right and wrong. Right? And so in them, when they're doing something wrong, it's something that they probably saw me model. So it helps me learn about the things that I can improve upon. So listening is also not just about hearing, right? Because you can hear without listening. Um, It's to have this focused attention. And one way you practice that is to do it in ways that are really hard. And the way I came to that is in running, in order to go faster, you had to do things that you didn't think you could do, right? Interval training and other things like that. And weights, you lift, you lift more. You have resistance training. It's the same thing with the compassion muscle, right? You do things that are really hard, and it builds that compassion. So when it comes to listening, it comes to those really important moments in life when you want to help a student. You're listening so you get the whole thing. But listening is not just with words. It's to pay attention to the gaps in silence, 
the gaps between the words, I should say, the silence. And Mozart taught me that. When you read uh, biographies about Mozart or interviews that had Mozart's writings in, in there, you know, he said that the music lied, lie, lay in the silence, in the gaps, in the pauses. That's where the real beauty is. And you know, when I thought about it, that's where it is for people too. You know, a lot of times it's when they go silent. And then when they're silent, you watch their body language. So the listening is not just with the ears, it's also with the eyes. Because when someone looks one way or the other way, they look down or, or they turn red about something, you know you're onto, you know, something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> are, we, that's a whole nother discussion. But those cues are not just in words. They're in the silences and then the body languages of people. That's what I mean about listening. You listen with the whole body. So it's really something that for a lot of people, most people, uh, compassion maybe is hard because hard to learn because you learn it as an adult. When you're a child growing up, you're taking in all this stuff. You're learning how to do so many things that uh, learning how to listen maybe isn't the uh, first one, right? Well, no, well see, that's, that's the thing. I, I, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I think that, think about when, back to your kids when they were toddlers, when they were one or two. They were sponges, man. Mm-hmm. They listened. They listened to everything, even the things you didn't want them to hear, mm-hmm. they got, right? And so, you know, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, famous for the social contract, actually pointed this out. He actually said that we were all born, except for psychopaths, because the way their brain is wired. Other than psychopaths, we're all born with natural compassion. That's his phrase. We're born with it. Hmm. Society, through society, we unlearn our natural compassion. And I think about it, right? King of the hill. Right. Kill the carrier. Right? Things, what my coaches and bosses would say to me, that you have to be ruthless. People try to hammer that natural compassion out of you. Uh, and, and, and I think when you look at young kids who are learning about life and learning about everything, they are total sponges. They are listening. And most of them are nice, too. <laughs> yes, and most of them are nice, unless you take away a special toy. Right? But, it's right, it's, but that's the thing. I think we, it's right in front of us. But we've been conditioned in such a way that we miss the stuff the, the kindness, the compassion that builds a stronger person, that builds a stronger society. Self-compassion builds resiliency. We know that. The Marines are in, what, their second or third year of a project that they put, put in a million the first year because they had great returns back on the Marines who had self-compassion training on building resiliency in terms of battle. Self-compassion in the in U.S. Marines. Tell me that compassion is soft hmm. and it doesn't equal strength. I'll show you so many different things that are. And, and, and think about nature, Paul, right? Because what's a hard element? Rock. What's a soft element? Water. But doesn't water cut through rock? Mm-hmm. So, you know, give me a break on the soft stuff and on the weak stuff. And the problem is that I think one of the things that we kind of put on a pedestal is this bravado this machoism of having to put down somebody else in order to look like you're successful or tough, that actually hurts not just the person that's being put down, but also the person who's putting down and then everybody who's witnessing it around it. 
What does that do to the morale of an organization? What would that do to the morale of a university? What would that do to the morale of any club, any team? It would take it down. Mm-hmm. And it, it, we just got to open our eyes and look. And, it, and it's there right in front of us. And so how's Evidence. your uh, reception been to your book so far? So far, I got really, really good. Psychology Today um, just labeled it, um, was it last Thursday, as one of the top seven books to read this summer to change your life. Uh, so that was fantastic, mm. Psychology Today, coming out with that. Uh, Connecticut Magazine yesterday or today just published it, featured it in Connecticut Magazine. Uh, the big surprise for me, and I, I guess it shouldn't have been a big surprise, but it's a pleasant um, surprise is the business community. So CEO Review, one of the largest um, book distributors in the country, gave it a glowing review and said that every CEO and any small business leader should be reading this book. Uh, that's that's the cool part. I'm getting a lot of business um, interest in it. Uh, Better Connecticut, CBS uh, TV, had, you know, ran a special on and, and, and Scott Haney asked me, you know, it would be so cool if you went into businesses. And I do, I go into businesses and it's, that's, that's the real fun part because I think business, people think that businesses aren't interested in it, but successful businesses are, and they know it's important, you know, places like General Mills have had it for over 15 years to increase their bottom line and one of the most successful companies there are. So they even have compassion meditation for their workers. Mm. Uh, and, that's the stuff that's really exciting to me, and the reception has been pretty positive. There's going to be, you know, I expect there's going to be more people that come out and, and, and try to say something against it. But what was really great with HarperCollins is that, you know, they had me write it so an eighth grader on up could read it. But I asked them if they could keep all the scientific notations. So they kept the entire bibliography. So you can see all the science behind it in every every place where I cited. So I asked somebody, okay, I have Darwin, I have Jean-Jacques Rousseau, and I have all this neuroscience. You show me your proof. Oh, I also have businesses, right? Everything from Enron to Patagonia to the U.S. Marine Corps. Show me what you have. Treat me like the Missouri, like Missouri the state, the show me state. Mm-hmm. I'm showing you what I have. You show me what you have. And, and that's the interesting part. It's usually just one anecdote that someone has. And it, I am not saying that work jerks are not going to win. They are at times. They'll win some battles, but they're not, they don't win the war. Charles Darwin showed that uh, in, in terms of evolution. And I think that over time that, you know, I'm hoping that the book stirs discussion, that we have these um, discussions about where compassion can be, because I think compassion can be everywhere. Mm-hmm. It's not something that's religious. It's not something that's spiritual. It's something that's human. And I, I don't know where it can be excluded, to be honest with you. So if someone comes up with that, I'd be very interested in listening to them. Well, if when uh, compassion becomes everywhere, what will our world look like? Have you thought about that? How it would be different from it is how it is today? You know, I, I, believe, I would hope that compassion would be everywhere, but I'm also... I think back to my times as a counterintelligence agent and working on Wall Street, we're always going to need compassion because there are always going to be those people who are going to try to take advantage. And unfortunately, I don't think they're going to go away. Hmm. (laughs) I I think that that's always going to be there. So we're always going to need compassion. Um, 
I think if there's more compassion in the world, it'd be a much better place, getting to your question. I think it'd be a much stronger place politically, economically, civically. I, you know, when you look at what makes a country politically and economically strong, from neuroscience to social science, so from uh, Bob Putnam's work in social science to Paul Zak's work in neuroscience, they all show that the building of trust and compassion does that, leads to stronger economically and politically and civically societies. So if you take down compassion, if you take down other people, you're actually in your own country, you're weakening your own country. If you do it in your own organization, you're weakening your own organization. So, you know, I, I think it'll constantly get stronger if people see the science and we have, you know, some great discussions about that. So, unfortunately, I, I think that there will always be people who want to take advantage of others and want mm-hmm. to take down others. Um, but I think we have, we, humanity, has this great kind of shared resource. And that's the value, virtue, and verb called compassion. Mm. I love that. And I have one more question, but your book is available on Amazon, I imagine, and uh, every bookstore and all that. It is. It's, it's available at any place you can buy a book. It's also available on audio, all tips, different types of audio files, uh, MP3, iTunes, anywhere you can buy a book, anywhere you can listen to a book, uh, you can buy the book. Did you do the audio uh, recording or no. somebody else? No. What was really cool is that HarperCollins uh, gave me a list of people, and then they said, here are samples. And the guy, Rick Adamson, who did it, he's won all types of voice awards. And I said, he'd be my dream guy. And within an hour, uh, they called me back and said, he loves the book and wants to do it. And I was so psyched because he's got such a great voice <laughs> that um, I, was, I was super pleased that, that he was willing to, to read the book. Uh, so, yeah, HarperCollins has been a great, great partner all the way through this. And I, I couldn't ask for a better team, both in the editorial staff as well as the marketing staff. Uh, I've learned about social media stuff from them that I, I didn't know uh, existed. And, it, yeah, they, they've given me opportunities to help with the book. And what was really cool is that the book cover was fashioned by both HarperCollins team and Barnes & Noble team. Hmm. So Barnes & Noble got got involved in the cover of the book as well. Maybe next time we'll do a podcast on uh, the process of creating a book and working with a big book publisher. Sounds interesting. We'll have to break it up in parts. (laughs) (laughs) So my last question is, what's it like to talk one-on-one with the Dalai Lama? Oh, that's just one answer. (laughs) Wow. Okay. Um, It was beyond, it was otherworldly. Because he also blessed a kata and put it around my neck. Mm. And it's I felt, a scarf kind of thing. It is. Yeah. It, sorry. Yes, for the listeners. It's a white scarf um, that he blessed and then put around my neck. And when he did that, I felt like I was everywhere and nowhere at the same time. I felt like everything I ever read about quantum physics happened to me in that moment. And, and that, was, that was just, it was breathtaking. And the closest thing I ever came to that was I lost my uncle in the Vietnam War, and his name is up on the Vietnam Memorial. And when I'm down there, the first time I went, I scratched his name on a white piece of paper from my cousin, my cousin Jay, who was uh, my uncle. 
it was his father mm-hmm. and I sent it back to him and I I that had a feeling for me by touching that wall and touching his name that I've never had before in my life and this and I was very sad mm. very this was the same way but on, on total happiness you know I in having the Dalai Lama when he put that cot around me it was that feeling opposite of that sadness that I had of pure happiness and uh, it was just and I'm practicing Catholic <laughs> so it's nothing to do with being a Buddhist, but it's being around somebody like His Holiness that exudes pure compassion, and all He wants to do is make a better world. Mm-hmm. And He doesn't push back. He, had, he, if He does, it's with questions. If you noticed, and yeah. He's always learning. And to be around somebody like that just upped my energy levels like through the roof. I, 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 I couldn't come down off a cloud, not nine, 109, <laughs> um, that, that day. And I, I felt like I was walking on air. It, yeah, it was like everywhere and nowhere at the same time. Mm-hmm. That's fascinating. Thanks for being my guest today. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Paul. The, uh, I want to also thank our producers, Scott Volpe and Pete Puccio, who make this podcast available to the rest of the world. And two very cool guys. Yes. And if you like what you've heard, please subscribe at WCSU Media on iTunes or SoundCloud so you can stay up to date with all editions of WCSU 411, which is what we call this podcast, as well as the other WestCon podcasts, which are almost as good as this. (laughs) Coming up next on WCSU 411 in coming weeks, our interviews with beloved percussion professor Dave Smith. Oh, great man. He is. And organic chemistry professor Forrest Robertson, who will someday be beloved. Very cool. And WestCon's most recent Fulbright scholar, Allison Voss, who is a student of Chris's. Amazing scholar and just all around fantastic person. That's right. So we've got some great stuff coming up. Make sure you don't uh, miss out on any of it. And thanks again, Chris. Uh, Thank you, man.